0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's get to the optimism of the moment. We can do that with Ben Lagler, Tower Hudson Research CEO. Ben, that note dropped in all of our inboxes over the last couple of days, and we all sat up and paid attention a Q4 melt-up. Ben, why do you see a Q4 melt-up on the cards? I think
2: we've all sort of been a little bit distracted by the uh, by the election. We've just had a, quite a big consolidation, I would say, in the third quarter. Earnings and expectations have sort of followed the uh, the upgrade in some of these GDP forecasts. Uh, we've discounted we've had quite a big pullback uh, at the same time, I think, A lot of indicators tell me that we've sort of discounted a lot of the election. And what it's it's done, the sort of concern on the election, has prevented, I think, a lot of uh, investors who I I think are still pretty cautious from repositioning, uh, as they would normally be doing in the fourth quarter, for what I think is a big growth story, um, at least sequentially, in 2021. And you haven't seen that reallocation trade. And I think it's coming, regardless of who wins the election. I mean, we're looking at 4% U.S. GDP growth next year, 25% plus uh, earnings growth, and um, some, obviously some segments of the economy, which I de- or some segments of the market would I definitely be overweighting here, the more cyclical ones. They're going um, to see a lot more than that.
0: I look, Ben, I've been looking at the SPX chart here on the Bloomberg, Ben, and there's been two glorious opportunities from March to tell Ben Laidler he's wrong. Where do you find the courage, and I'm going to get the cursor out here, the official simulcast cursor, where on July 3rd or where on October 2nd does Ben Laidler find the courage as we correct?
2: Uh, listen, corrections, are. I mean, we, we, you, you never sort of rally remorselessly here. I mean, the incremental data point, though, is going to continue to be positive. I mean, we all were guilty of just cutting estimates sort of too far, getting too bearish. I think that's what happened in sort of March, April, May. I mean, now we're in the middle of just a, an earnings and a GDP upgrade cycle, which admittedly yeah. is going to need probably a bit more fiscal stimulus. And, and I'm sure we'll sort of talk about that. But, you know, the incremental data point is, is positive. I mean, back in April, we were looking at a 12-month forward earnings outlook of negative 5 to 10%. Now we're looking at a positive 15 to 20%. Uh, and right. I think we're going to get more fiscal stimulus. I think we're going to get uh, a vaccine. Uh, and, and as I say, there are some segments of the market here which have dramatically higher, um, have dramatic operating leverage uh, to all of that, which right. I think are going to lead this recovery. And, and they really haven't done so far.
0: I don't, John, I don't believe him. I'm still looking for an entry point. I don't care what Ben Laidler says. He's been so right. John, did you like on a Friday how I used a surveillance cursor? there, the simulcast cursor to nail down those pullbacks?
1: Nice. Well done. Thank you. Lisa, help me. Help me.
3: (laughs) Anytime. I will take out my own surveillance cursor and move the conversation forward. Ben, you talk about this pessimism that's baked into the market. And yet we see all this data, the economic data coming out showing the steepest recession possibly in history. And I'm looking right now, the Nasdaq is up mm, 28 percent year to date. I'm looking at an S&P up more than 8 percent. Where is that pessimism that you're talking about?
2: So you've had, I think, $80 billion come out of U.S. equity mutual funds since the bottom. Uh, you look at the American Association of uh, Individual Investors, uh, 40% uh, uh, 40% of bearish. You know, six months into the rally, you've still got 40% bearish. You know, it's still way above average. I even look at the sort of famous uh, Robin Hood's. Uh, Trading volume chart, and that's basically the lowest it's been since uh, uh, since March. You look at the VIX again; six months into this rally, it's still above average, and VIX futures, you know, are going higher from here, not lower. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I mean, I would say you know, there's very few indicators that actually tell me that people are positive. I mean, we have a a, a composite. Um, Investor sentiment indicator, which is nearly at contrarian buy levels at this point. And that's historically given you a 20% 12 month return. So I think this is part of the story as we roll through the election and we put that in the sort of the backward mirror. Uh, investors, I think, are going to be forced to allocate on the basis of a sort of 14 month view into 2021 of, um, of, yeah. of significant growth.
1: Well, Ben, that's what I think really sets you apart from the pack right now, not just the call, but the fact that you don't think this is election-dependent. Why don't you think this is election-dependent?
2: Well, A, I think we've priced quite a lot into the election anyway. Uh, And and B, I just think you look back historically and... Uh, you know I think we over discount elections uh, you know back in 2016 if you knew that Donald Trump was going to win what would you you know and, and you thought the election was really important you would have run off and loaded up on energy and financials and then essentially you would have had your head handed to you over the last uh, talking four to me? five years
0: <laughs> Ben I got one final question here and, and again folks I can't say enough about you know we're kidding him but I can't say enough about Ben Laidler's calls here going back to that ugly Q4 of a few years ago Ben Laidler the money question is, for those that were fortunate enough, like John Farrow, to load the boat on Amazon and Apple, do they sell shares to go to the Laidler rotation, or do they hold them and use new money to go to the Laidler rotation?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I sort of think about it a little bit as sort of structural versus cyclical. I mean, I do think that the tech trend is a very uh, is a very sort of structural trend. I mean, they may they may underperform for a quarter or two in amongst that sort of rotation into cyclicals, but you know, ultimately, I think they're going to be very fine. You know, the story is just a little bit different. But as I say, I think the real operating leverage is on the cyclical side. I mean, the, you know, we have a reopening basket. Uh, uh, you know, they're all losing money. Uh, they're on a third the valuation of the sort of work from home sort of tech names. And um, and I think and, and it's where all the earnings upgrades have been coming from. And I think we're going to get a double surprise here of um, things that are the top line improving, potentially catalyzed by by vaccine or not. But also, you know, I think what we're missing is just all, a lot of costs being taken out. And I think once the economy sort of really begins to get going again, I think we're going to be stunned by the degree of earnings upgrades Um that we see that. And I would say these cyclicals, you know, because investors have sort of been held back by, you know, just this this very boring debate on fiscal stimulus and are we going to get any, the election, you know, second wave of vaccines, that's really stopped people from going into those cyclicals. So I think you still have a huge opportunity there.
1: It is a boring debate, but it's basically the program at the moment. Ben, it's great to catch up. Ben <laughs> We're Laidler to sell it, of to Hudson Research. <laughs> well, it is. Let's just call it what it is it's right true. now. You're not wrong.
0: This separation here, and we can talk about this with John Norman in a bit here, folks. The disinflation in Europe versus inflation worries in the U.S. is really, really quite something. John Norman joins us. This is wonderful to get him before the publication of all of JP Morgan research under Joyce Chang. Uh, that starts on a Friday. It filters out Michael Ferroli tonight and then on to Norman's hyper detailed institutional note for Monday morning. He is head of cross asset fundamental strategy. John, the theme for me this morning is with the jump condition in Renminbi and the optimism of an Asia-Pacific recovery, what is the correlation right now between the Asia indicators and the Standard & Poor's 500 good news?
4: Well, I think there's a, a reasonable correlation because both of these are moving on the prospect of a, a Biden victory, and I think a sweep Biden to me is both positive for the S&P and for Asian assets to the extent that you have calmer geopolitics, and of course, if this is a Biden victory with the sweep, you're going to have much more domestic stimulus too. So the the price action across markets this morning is, is very suggestive to me of the the sweep. The only thing that kind of stands out is the fact that bond yields aren't really moving that much, and and that's kind of got to kind of condition how how bullish you are on some of the value rotation Mm -hmm. trades that that people are also focused on right now
0: the expectation game is a movable feast how far out are the markets pricing are they pricing out to next wednesday are they pricing out to november 3rd or are they pricing out say into q2 of next year
4: I think the pricing out into the mid part of next year, if not beyond, the, the simplest way to think about what's going on in markets is they're moving from a fixation on a gross slowdown, which was really what started to grip in, in August and September, to the idea that the cycle is going to get rebooted through fiscal stimulus under a democratic sweep. And if it is a reboot, we're talking about an expansion that's going to go on for quite a while. And we're talking about uh, a focus on data stumbles, shifting towards data strength. And I think if we fo- we follow the normal cyclical path, that, that strength will extend well. To next year if we get more more fiscal stimulus so the market's looking quite far ahead in terms of what the stimulus does to the to the cycles prospects
1: well let's talk about how far ahead this market's getting itself at the moment john this new narrative is pretty young a couple of weeks ago if i had a series of guests on this program they would turn around to us all all three of us and say contested election is the risk now we have flipped and mm-hmm. we're talking about a blue wave how vulnerable is that narrative john
4: well, to me, the vulnerability is not really around the contested election, because I feel like the polls are shifting so far in favor of Biden that, that any claims of, of fraud are, are going to be dismissed fairly quickly if the margins are very wide in favor of Biden in a lot of states. To me, where you have the vulnerability in terms of a narrative shift is the possibility that maybe the Senate doesn't flip. And so if Biden is the president, but there's no change in control in Congress, then we're going to still be dealing with the same impasse around fiscal policy that we have now. And all this optimism around the sweep and stimulus and a reboot of the cycle is going to collapse. So I think you really have to watch this space closely in terms of what happens with the Senate. To me, if it's a divided government, whether it's under Biden or under Trump, you do have the risk of a, a decent slowdown in the U.S. economy and a unwinding of the optimism that's been lifting markets over the past couple of weeks.
1: So, John, you've talked about the vulnerability of the narrative. Let's talk about the market areas that might be vulnerable. These are the longs, the calls that you've got on right now. Curve steepener, inflation break-evens, gold, materials, healthcare equities, China equities, bond FX. Out of those calls, John, if you get that divided government, where are you uncomfortable?
4: Well, the only ones I'm comfortable with is owning Asia, whether that's on the equity or the currency side, because I I do have a high conviction view that Biden will end up winning. And that to me is supportive of these geopolitically driven trades like owning Asia. All the other trades you mentioned, the value rotation, the the movement up in bond yields, the the steepening, the the movement higher in the S&P. This to me is quite conditional on, on the sweep, because that to me is the only political outcome that gives you some guarantee of a meaningful fiscal stimulus. So I'd still be comfortable with the Asia recommendations. As long as Biden is the president, I wouldn't be comfortable with the other stuff unless we get the sweep.
3: So John, I'm looking at a number of job cut announcements day after day. Yesterday, uh, AT&T's WarnerMedia announced thousands of layoffs. Today, L'Oreal is going to be closing some stores and uh, laying off 400 workers. At what point does this matter to your overall bullish thesis?
4: Well, I don't think it matters if we get additional fiscal stimulus, because I, I do believe part of the reason we're getting these layoffs is because the income support that's been uh, moving from Washington to, to Main Street is, is starting to dry up. And, and so there's a need to replace that. And I think if it is replaced, of course, there will be job losses in some sectors, but there'll be job gains in others. And I think you'll see a, a continuous move down in the unemployment rate. Without the stimulus, though, I think you have to extrapolate from what's happening in terms of job losses and, and the loss of momentum in, in jobless claims. And and you do have to be concerned about a subtrend quarter, uh, if not two subtrend quarters in the U.S. and what that means for for markets. So the stimulus to me is, is very key.
3: Meanwhile, John, as you talk about your high conviction trades, you said your highest conviction was that Joe Biden would win the presidency in the United States. When you look at market positioning, how high is the conviction just in the positioning right now that that will be the outcome?
4: I think the positioning is actually suggestive of a of, of a broader election outcome that changes control of the Senate. To to me, that's the only way you could justify the strength in in all risky markets, as well as the uh, slight firming you've had in yields and the interest in curve steepeners. That that to me is a, a set of trades, a set of market moves, which would only be validated by the sweep. So I think investors are definitely leaning towards that, and you know, obviously the the risk is that they could be disappointed.
1: Well, John, one of the trades you think could be insulated, regardless if we get a divided government or not, is the long China trade right now. Dollar China making a move overnight on return from holiday. I just wonder, John, your thoughts on the tolerance of the Chinese policymaker, how extended that trade can get?
4: Historically, they don't tend to let the currency appreciate more than sort of high single digits in in any given year. So this is always going to be kind of a, a lower beta FX trade relative to what you might achieve in equities if you're bullish on the cycle or relative to what you might achieve in the equities if you're bullish on China specifically. But I do think there's a, a bit of room to go on this. You know, China has a, a surplus and there's a structural flow into mm-hmm. bonds and stocks related to index inclusion. And, and my guess is there have been some clients who have been uh, less interested in investing in Asia over the past few months, thinking that Trump could get reelected. So so my guess is that if you do have Biden as the president, regardless of the congressional outcome, you will see some position covering and some move back into China, which is independent of what's going uh-huh. on in the business cycle.
0: John, one of the great debates here, we talked to the wonderful Matthew Lozetti over at Deutsche Bank here recently, and I think it's something that we've heard from Bruce Kasman and your team as well. We're in a present milieu, which is an economic flatness, slowdown, and then there's a belief, as you mentioned, of economic recovery into next year. Should our listeners and viewers just discard the present and the past and just be laser focused on what's out there in 2021? Is that basically the emo- the emotional exercise?
4: Well, there's always an emotional component to investing because investing is done by people and people just can't help but be emotional. But it is important to remember what to me is the big lesson of the uh, post-GFC experience is that there are structural uh, constraints on growth after a major financial or economic crisis. There's a need for fiscal policy to remain expansive Mm -hmm. for a long time. The policy mistake after the GFC was to let fiscal policy tighten for about three years in the U.S. after the GFC. That was part of the reason why you had such anemic uh, growth in the U.S. Mm -hmm. after that Crisis. So I think it is worth remembering that if fiscal policy inadvertently tightens, which is what we're going to see on current legislation, right. we will re- repeat the, the anemia of the post-GFC years. If fiscal policy is loosened under a different uh, setup in, in Washington, we, we can avoid that fate. Right.
0: Within the glide pass of the 10-year yield, John Norman, where is the important statistic of the 10-year yield? Don't tell me it's a 1.00, but where where is the point where 10-year yield begins to signal issues to you?
4: To me, if 10-year rates were probably close to 1.5%, then I think— That high? Wow. Yes, I think we would have to question whether or not this is potentially doing some damage to the recovery. Of course, if uh, the context for getting to 1.5% is uh, significant fiscal stimulus, much more on the spending side, less on the the tax side, it's less worrisome. But I think the Mm -hmm. the market should be very comfortable with a 10-year rate— up to one percent, maybe even one twenty five. after that, I think it's still too fragile a recovery to to think that that level of rates is is helpful. But remember the Fed has a, a very flexible asset purchase program in place. I think they probably have some internal sense of what a helpful level of yields is versus an unhelpful level of yields. So I, I do have some confidence that the asset purchase program would be adjusted mm-hmm. to make sure that rates don't stay at an unhelpful level for very long. So I think I think this problem is is manageable.
1: John Norman, great to catch up, sir. As always, send our best to the team. John Norman, there of JP Morgan.
0: There is stimulus, and there'll be fancy conversations today among fancy people in Washington. There is no one in Washington who covers our policy research with tangible experience in actually getting infrastructure done like Michael Zesis. He's at Morgan Stanley. He's head of U.S. policy research, but far more importantly, cut his teeth out of Georgetown in municipal finance of actually getting bridges built. Michael, I want to go down to the granular here. Business Insider did a great article a year ago or so of the worst bridges in the world. And they go back to the Chester Nimitz Bridge in Honolulu, built in 1949, and staggered through the 50s up to the hemorrhage of construction we had in the 1970s, and it's all worn out. With this infrastructure that we're going to see, are those bridges and all the rest of it, is it finally going to get fixed?
5: Uh, I think we are a couple of steps away from that, right? So the, the, the stimulus package that's on the table at least when it comes to – so state and local governments obviously are critical to infrastructure. They're, they basically own and finance uh, about 80% of infrastructure assets in the U.S. But this, you know, the first round of stimulus, should it come through, is about kind of plugging the hole in revenues, not providing kind of incremental infrastructure. If you want infrastructure incremental on top of that, probably the political configuration you need coming out of the election is uh, a sweep by the Democrats. Um, If that's the case, and then they would probably, they would have the motive and the opportunity to pass a large infrastructure bill. And you could start plugging some of those holes, uh, you know, a couple of trillion dollars plus throughout the country in terms of deferred capital needs and new capital around the country. But we're, you know, There's a a lot of uh, steps, a lot of uh, nodes on the decision tree before you get there.
3: All right. So let's not talk about fixing the Nimitz Bridge of 1949 just yet. Tom, will discuss that perhaps next year. Michael, let's talk about who doesn't get paid if there is not a near-term fiscal support bill passed in Washington, D.C. How much can we expect state and local governments to have to lay off in mass some of their employees because they cannot increase their deficit the way the national government can?
5: Yeah, it's a good question, right? So let's start with some high-level numbers here. Uh, we estimate that states cumulatively through the end of 2021 are going to be short on revenues about 180 billion dollars. Uh, local governments about 90, so 270 total. Um, how do you close those gaps? You've got austerity options, so taxing or cutting spending. You've got borrowing options, including, uh, obviously, the open market, but also the MLF uh, at the Fed, which basically is going to cover for all of that. So it's a a bit of a choice here, and I expect different states will make different choices. Um, Austerity will probably be part of the picture, and layoffs will probably be part of the picture. Um, And I think borrowing will be, too. It's not a great combination, uh, but it's a middle road. When all this plays out, I I suspect that states are probably waiting to see if the stimulus negotiation in D.C. is successful. Maybe they'll even hold on a couple more months to see if the election gets you a configuration that makes it successful. Um, But uh, after that, austerity has to kick in at some
1: point. Michael, you didn't mention default risk. Where does the D word fit into any of this?
5: I don't think it's particularly meaningful. Um, I think this is a conversation that was perhaps legitimate to have in March and April in the teeth of all of this. But the Fed opening up the MLF, which has uh, capacity for about $250 billion of borrowing uh, for states, means that if states effectively wanted to term out their entire revenue shortfall, They could. Even they couldn't do it in the open market, the Fed is right there on the backstop. So uh, the the, the revenue shortfall sort of creating a jump-to-default story I don't think is particularly meaningful here. The Fed basically is offering the option to states to push this out, spread it out over a few years if needed.
0: Michael, to the mix here of what Lisa was talking about and I was talking about, what happens if we get sort of the same thing but flip, a Democratic president and still a Republican Senate? Then what happens to this huge demand for infrastructure?
5: Yeah, it's a good question. Our base case doesn't see in that situation that you would get an infrastructure bill. The the fundamental problem on infrastructure has never been that uh, the parties don't see the need for it. It's that they don't agree on how to finance it. And the, the Republican proposals always get twisted up around um, how do you increase spending without increasing the deficit or increasing taxes, two things that you basically can't get a majority of Republican representatives in D.C. to do. And then on the Democratic side, obviously, you're would potentially willing to do one of those two things, but in a divided government scenario, you need need the other side to agree. So unfortunately, I think infrastructure Mm -hmm. in the type of divided government scenario you talk about would just continue to, be subject to gridlock. Yeah.
1: Michael Zisis, good to hear from you, sir, of Morgan Stanley. Well, an
0: eventful Friday, to say the least, but what we do at Bloomberg Surveillance on Friday on radio, on television, is get ready for the weekend reading and get ready for the next week. Stephen Stanley is expert at that. He's won every trophy out there with Amherst Pierpont, and we're thrilled we could get an update. Stephen Stanley, what is the distinction right now? What is the update in your American economic call?
6: sure well i think you know we're 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 slowing down we've gone through the 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 fast recovery phase here we've gotten back to some percentage of normal um consumption spending through august was about 80 percent of of pre-pandemic levels employment only a little over half of the way back and now i think we're kind of settling into um the next phase which is going to be continued recovery but at a slower pace and i think you know there's been a lot of <clears throat> Discussion around the stimulus, and I think, Mm -hmm. uh, in my mind, that I think a lot of people are assuming that that the economy is entirely dependent on another round of stimulus like yesterday. And I think certainly more stimulus sooner would would push growth higher. But um, I I think the economy can continue to recover. Uh, without it in the near term.
0: What is the partition right now in America among goods producers versus service producers?
6: Well, it's pretty stark because the good side of the economy in many ways is back to pre-pandemic levels and even beyond it. Retail sales, core durable goods orders, um, obviously the housing sector. Uh, So there are a number of parts of the economy that are, you know, I don't know, booming might be a little too strong, but but certainly very robust. And even within the service sector, there's there are winners and losers. And it's really just a function of the pandemic and the restrictions that have been uh, put in place. So, you know, you've got some sectors that are struggling, like restaurants, and then you've got other sectors that are just kind of flat on their back, uh, air travel, hotels. Well, Stephen, that's the story
1: sports. at the moment. Everyone's calling this the K-shaped recovery now. It's getting some real traction. I just wonder how extended those two legs of that K can actually get.
6: Well, I think that's totally a function of the uh, of the virus. Um, you know, if six months from now we have vaccines and effective treatments, um, which seems like a, a, a not an unrealistic scenario, um, then you could see a quick revival in some of those sectors that are having trouble right now, even though... They've made virtually no progress so far. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the difficulty that we all have in the markets and that the Fed has is that visibility is just not very far. I mean, we maybe we have a pretty good idea what things are going to look like in two or three months. But once you start talking about six months out, 12 months out, two years out, um, you know, it could it, literally the, the scenario could be anything.
1: Stephen, do you think these shifts are COVID dependent or do you think there's some permanency to them?
6: There's certainly things that have taken place that are going to be permanent. Some structural changes in the economy that were ongoing that have been accelerated. Um, for example, the move to, to online retailers um, versus brick and mortar. Um, that's something that's been going on for years, and it's clearly been accelerated. Um, I think you know one of the most important things perhaps that's come out of this is going to be the move toward work from home and i think there are going to be people who uh continue to work from home or, or at least work from home some days uh that maybe that never would have happened uh in the absence of the pandemic so there's certainly things that are challenging business travel maybe is is permanently curtailed to a degree we'll have to see um, so yes there i think there will be structural changes uh well beyond the point at which uh the pandemic is is a memory.
3: Do you think that the, these disruptions will have material structural issues for the market? I'm thinking, for example, you talk about commercial real estate, people expecting further declines there. And then I think about regional banks and how much they own in with respect to commercial real estate assets. How much will you expect the Fed to step in to smooth out any bumps as we go about this recovery, regardless of any fiscal support from Washington?
6: Right. Well, I think from the Fed's perspective, they're feeling better about this crisis than the last one because we're starting with a financial system that's in much better shape. So, they are—they have provided generous support to the markets, and, and they stand ready as a backstop in a lot of different places. Um, and thankfully, a lot of those facilities haven't really needed to be used because the markets have recovered quickly. Um, so, yeah, they're there. I don't think that they're just going to bail out anyone and everyone that, uh, you know, that, that needs it, because you, you kind of have to allow that um, creative destruction to take place uh, as the economy evolves. But I, I think that they're going to be pretty generous about providing a backstop and making sure that any adjustments like that that need to take place don't become... Uh, you know, a structural issue, a systemic issue for the the financial system.
3: And they've made this clear. And yesterday in the meeting minutes from the previous uh, FOMC meeting, they talked about how they could potentially use additional QE asset purchases to support the economy. Are they supporting the economy at this point? How much more can suppressing 10-year yields by another 10 basis points do to actually get more people at work?
6: Yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view, and it's one that I made for years. I made it the last time through, and it's interesting. There was a study that came out recently um, that found that that central bank economists around the world put a lot more uh, weight or effectiveness on uh, QE purchases than non-central uh, bank, you know, academic, private academic economists. And I think there maybe is a blind spot there. Um, the fact is, the Fed, that's really the only... Major button that they can push uh, beyond forward mm-hmm. guidance, so they they don't want to uh, admit that it maybe isn't isn't all that helpful. But I mean, as you say, I mean, ten-year yields are around 75 mm-hmm. basis points. I, I don't mm-hmm. know that there's much marginal benefit to taking them down another 10 or. 15 or 20 basis points from here.
0: If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television, Stephen Stanley with us with Amherst Pierpont. Stephen, you know politics is about jobs. Maybe even jobs is about politics. What's the true unemployment rate in America this 25 days to the election?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there we've got an 8 percent unemployment rate. Then you've got about another 2 percent uh, decline in labor force participation from before the pandemic. And some of those folks won't be able to come back until, um, you know, until things straighten out, you know, until schools are fully open, for example, uh, and some of these businesses are able to uh, get back to normal. And, and then you've got people who are only able to work part-time, so it, probably somewhere in the, in the low double digits, but it's certainly down very sharply um, you know, from what, a, what an all-in unemployment rate would have been at the, at the peak of the lockdowns when you're probably talking about it, something above
1: 20%. Stephen Stanley, great to catch up, sir. Stephen Stanley there of Amherst Pierpont. Thanks for listening to the
0: Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.